Monday, July 23rd. Back for the first time in a couple of weeks with episode 37 of the Next Day Takeaways. Looking back at UFC London, which took place yesterday at the O2 Arena. Closed out by Tom Aspinall returning 364 days after injuring his knee in the same venue. Closing out the show with a first round stoppage win over Martian Tybura. Officially, 1 minute 13 seconds of round 1. Aspinall back in the win column. Back moving forward in the heavyweight division. We will get to him, some future matchups, some takeaways from this fight. But before we get into that, we will do just a complete rundown of the results from yesterday's show. So as I mentioned, Tom Aspinall defeats Marcin Tybura. First round, TKO, stoppage victory. 1 minute 13 seconds of the first round. Co-main event, Yulia Stoliarenko. Submits Molly McCann by armbar. One minute, 55 seconds of the opening round. A very good performance for Stoliarenko. Featherweights, Nathaniel Wood defeats Andre Feely by unanimous decision. 29-28 across the board. This, for me, was fight of the night. It did not receive those honors. We will touch on the fight that did a little later on. Middleweight, Paul Craig makes a successful debut at 185 pounds, earning a second-round stoppage win over Andre Muniz. Four minutes, 40 seconds of the middle stanza. Lightweight fight for Red Zayem defeats Jai Herbert. 29-28 twice, 30-27 once in a tepid fight that I probably won't touch on anymore in this broadcast. Back to featherweight, Lerone Murphy defeats Joshua Kulibau. Unanimous decision victory, 30-26 twice, getting a 10-8 in round three from two judges and 30-27 once. And in the Main card opener that was originally the preliminary card closer. Daniel Marcos remains undefeated, earning a split decision nod over Davy Grant. 29-28s across the board, two for Marcos, one for Grant. Marcos moves to 15-0. Welterweight Johnny Parsons defeats Danny Roberts by TKO at 4 minutes 57 seconds of round two in a slop fest that earned fight of the night honors. Back to lightweight, Yoel Alvarez defeats Mark Jacasey by Brabo Choke at 4 minutes 26 seconds of round 2. There was actually a clash of heads late in this fight. Uh, Mark Jacasey was shooting in, Yoel Alvarez changed levels, their heads connected, Alvarez being a towering giant for lightweight. His forehead connected with the back of Jacasey's head, knocked him a little woozy. The referee, Dan Movahedi, told him to continue. Alvarez swarms, gets it to the ground, gets the choke. Very curious to see if that one gets appealed at some point going forward. Heavyweights, Mick Parkin defeats Jamal Pogues by unanimous decision, 30-27s across the board. Middleweight, Mahmoud Muradov defeats Brian Barberina, 30-27s across the board there as well. Women's bantamweight division, Ketlin Vieira defeats Penny Kianzad, 29-28 across the board for the Brazilian. Back to lightweight, Chris Duncan defeats Yanel Ashmuz. 30-27 twice, 29-28. The problem picks up a second win in London this year. Bruna Brazil spoils the UFC debut of Shauna Bannon, earning a unanimous decision win. 29-28 twice and 30-27 once. And then in the opener, Jafel Filo submits Daniel Perez. One minute, sorry, three minutes, 26 seconds of round one. A beautiful arm triangle choke rallying back after getting stung early in the fight to get his first win in two appearances in London this year. So Tom Aspinall is is clearly the main talking point of this event, not just because he was in the main event, not just because this was built around sort of his return to the O2 and his return to competing at home, but because he is a legitimate championship threat in the heavyweight division. I think a lot of people, myself included, felt that way going into the Curtis Blades fight last year. We got 15 seconds of that fight. Tom shredded his MCL, strained his ACL in that fight, and just had to deal with literally a year on the sidelines, less a day, before coming back, returning, getting that victory, and he looked good. This isn't one of those, this was one of those fights where Going in, my question on Wednesday on one question was just how is he going to look, right? Is there going to be some hesitation? Is there going to be some awkwardness because he's back in the O2? He's back in the same place where this injury happened. 
The answer was no. And he made that clear right out of the gates by throwing a high kick with the leg that he had shredded his knee on. And so to then go out and beat Marcin Tybura in this way, I understand there are people that will look at Marcin Tybura and say, he's never been a top five guy. He's never going to be a top five guy. And I don't disagree. That's certainly true. But he's also someone that was 7-1 in his last eight UFC appearances prior to this, including a win over Sergei Spivak, including a good win over Blagoy Ivanov, Alexander Romanov. He had beaten all the guys in that realm around him, and Spivak, who is now on a nice little run. This was the right fight for Tom Aspinall, and he did the thing that you want to see from a fighter that has as much promise and as much upside as he does, going out and absolutely trouncing Marcin Tybura. He got the microphone at the end of his interview from with Michael Bisping, who asked him the obvious, what do you want to do next? Who do you want to fight next? And he said, I'm going to go to Paris. I'm going to watch that fight between Cyril Gunn and Sergei Spivak. I'm going to fight the winner, and then I'm going to go fight and beat John Jones and become the UFC heavyweight champion. I love the idea of him going to Paris to watch that fight and face the winner. I'm not sure who's going to win that fight. Sergey Spivak has improved by a great deal since he fought Tom Aspinall the first time on short notice, stepping in to face Aspinall and getting and getting trucked, quite frankly. He may beat Cyril Ghosn, who has shown a difficulty dealing with grapplers. And Spivak has developed into a very, very strong grappler who knows how to play to his strengths, how to get to where he wants to go. So I'm very curious to see how that one plays out. Regardless of who wins, I'm picking Aspinall. And if you put gun to my head right now on July 23rd, 2023, and ask me who's going to be the heavyweight champion in two years time, I'm going to pick Tom Aspinall. I think he is that good. I think he is that legit. I have always liked from the limited times I've talked to him and the various fights of his that I have watched and interviews and different things. I've always loved his approach. I love the athleticism, the diversity of skills. And I think the one thing that still makes me so high on Tom Aspinall, and it's something he and I have talked about a couple of times, we still haven't seen the full complement of what this man can do. Because we haven't had to. He's been that dominant. He's been out of the first round once in the UFC. He has been that good. There are still pieces of his game that we haven't gotten to see. And there are parts, in my opinion, that are really good. We've seen a little glimpse of the grappling, right? Took Alexander Volkov down, submitted him with a straight armbar, which is a, a submission you don't see all that much in the UFC. But I think there's even more there with Aspinall. And so whether it's Cyril Gaon or Sergei Spivak, I think that is the right direction to go. Winner of that then fights for the heavyweight title. Now, I'm not sure that John Jones is sticking around. I don't necessarily believe that John Jones hangs out beyond Madison Square Garden in November. I think if he wins, rides off into the sunset and says, I have... I have set the bar really high for all these GOAT discussions. I was the undisputed, dominant, unbeaten in the division light heavyweight champion. After three years away, I returned, went up to heavyweight, ran through Cyril Gaon that you all said was really good, defeated the man known as the greatest heavyweight in UFC history, Stipe Miocic, and so I'm out of here. And I wouldn't fault him for it. Because I wouldn't want to hang around and see if any of these younger up-and-coming fighters are capable of knocking me out off, off my perch. Right right now, John Jones has still got that little bit of aura of unbeaten that we haven't seen anybody, anybody retire with. Yes, there is the loss on the record, but none of us believe that Matt Hamill beat John Jones, deserved to beat John Jones. It's still one of the worst officiating decisions that I can remember in my MMA watching career. So to go out on top, win world titles in two weight classes makes a whole lot of sense. Plus, I would want no part of Tom Aspinall or Sergey Pavlovich. Which brings us 
to the big Russian. After the broadcast, as they were wrapping up, sitting at the desk, John Gooden, Paul Felder, Michael Bisping. Bisping offers, I have an idea of what should be next. I understand his call out just now with me of Cyril Gaon or Stipe, or excuse me, Sergei Spivak, but I think he should fight Sergei Pavlovich. And I couldn't disagree more. That is a fight that I want no part of right now. I don't want to see it because there's absolutely no reason in my eyes to burn one of these two by having them face each other at this point. Those two guys, to me, should only cross paths when UFC gold is on the line. Now, maybe they don't get there jointly, together, and that's fine. But if you have two guys that right now look like they can be legitimate championship contenders, bring them both along. We saw this back in the day with Junior Dos Santos and Cain Velasquez. They worked their way up the divisional ranks on parallel tracks. And we all knew after about two or three fights that these two young fellas are going to cross paths someday and it's going to be for the heavyweight title. And it was a massive fight. It was the, the extra show on Fox to kick off that relationship. And it had the gravitas that you want a fight like that to have. Antoine Jackson and I on, on Wednesday when we taped the special Keyboard Kimura podcast talked about big fights getting to feel big. This to me is the same thing. Running Tom Aspinall and Sergey Pavlovich as the main event of an ESPN show or an ABC show in some place that isn't either of their home locales doesn't make sense to me. They're both on really great runs. And I know that Pavlovich has lost once before and that was in the UFC, but I still to this day throw that one out because it was thrown to the wolves against Alistair Overeem in Singapore. It didn't make sense. It was an understandable loss. He has been absolutely phenomenal since. Keep them running in parallel tracks. Have them cross paths when the title is hanging in the balance because I think they're both good enough to get there. And I think John Jones is going to leave after beating Stipe Miocic at Madison Square Garden. Yulia Stolyarenko's win. I'm happy for her to get a victory. I talked to her before the fight. She was very excited about getting down to flyweight, figuring it all out, getting a chance to really get to a division where she feels her skills will translate best. So far, so good. Did what she needed to do. Met Molly McCann in the center. Happy to exchange with her early. Once she got it to the ground, it was an absolute wrap. My takeaway from this fight, though, and I said it to Harry when we were kind of chatting as we were watching the events, and the UFC rolled that sort of highlight reel of Molly McCann in London the previous the previous year. It's crazy to me how there are times when the UFC understandably gets all in and all the way behind marginal fighters. And I don't say that to be a jerk, but Molly McCann is a marginal fighter. Way too much was made of her victories over Luana Carolina and Hannah Goldie. The Hannah Goldie win was handpicked for. And at the time, I remember Miranda Maverick being like, I want that fight. And yet they're bringing her a straw weight to beat up at home. And that's what it was. And we saw the limitations against Aaron Blanchfield. And for anybody that wants to say, well, she was thrown in too deep. And that was just meant to elevate Blanchfield. Fine, we knew it was a bad matchup at the time. This one shows you that there are massive holes in Molly McCann's game that still remain to this day that shouldn't still be there to this day if she's more than just this person. And so I understand there being local favorites and fan favorites and you keep rolling her out there. You continue to give her opportunities. Maybe you even give her favorable matchups. You keep her away from grapplers. And just say, look, this is what we're going to do. But this isn't surprising. I know I picked Molly McCann. I didn't expect Solyarenko to be able to get through some shots. And she did. So I owe her an apology for thinking she was going to get lit up. But a lot of people thought she was going to get lit up. And Molly McCann either needs to address those errors and address those mistakes. Or the UFC needs to 
make sure that they give her favorable matchups because you can't continue to roll out this person and bring them in as a co-main event and have a video package celebrating their performances and then they get trucked. We're not going to have to deal with this for a few months at least because it seems like Molly McCann is probably going to have some ligament damage to deal with and be on the shelf for a bit. But this was a this was a tough performance and it's going to take I think there's going to be some soul searching. That's what I'll say. I think there's got to be some soul searching here after this one. Not only did Nathaniel Wood and Andre Feely deserve fight of the night honors, both deserve a round of applause. Nathaniel Wood is now 3-0 at featherweight. Despite being slightly undersized, he is using his speed, he is using his diversity of attacks, and his understanding of just constantly working to carry him to victory. This was a super competitive, super fun fight where both guys got hurt, both guys had moments, and Wood was able to kind of steal it away and, and pull it out in the late stages of the third round. As much as I'm excited for the upside of Nathaniel Wood and the continuing development in this division of Nathaniel Wood, I want to take this time to shout out Andre Feely because he is one of those guys, and I touched on this earlier in the week, and I touch on this kind of stuff all the time. Andre Feely is 33 years old. He has never won more than two consecutive fights in the UFC, and he's only done that a couple of times. He's never lost two in a row either, and his record in the UFC isn't great overall. It is, as I look at his record. He has 10 wins. He has eight losses, nine losses now, and one no contest. So he is a 500 fighter just about in the UFC. And I don't give a shit. Because you want to give me that guy that went out there yesterday and met Nathaniel Wood in the center of the octagon, traded hands with him for 15 minutes, hurt him, stung him, pushed him, rallied from getting hurt himself. I'll take that every day of the week. And there are going to be people that disagree with that. But as I talk about regularly, you want to give me fighters like Feely that can live and thrive and serve a purpose in that second 15 as part of the ecosystem in this division. We need them across every weight class. A couple weeks back on the podcast, I put together a piece on sort of Josh Emmett and some of the other steely veterans in these respective divisions that don't get the credit that they deserve that have done good things. Andre Feely isn't quite at his teammates level in terms of accomplishment, but he is that he is the prototypical, the quintessential journeyman fighter where that word isn't used as a pejorative. It is used as a term of endearment. He's a good hand. He is a skilled, talented fighter that gives you everything he's got. Every time he's out there, he pushed Nathaniel Wood. Nathaniel Wood is better today having faced Andre Feely. That's the kind of thing I want. Give me guys like that. I'm looking forward to seeing what goes on with Wood going forward. Later in the show, towards the end, I'm going to run through the winners on the card, giving my thoughts on who they should fight next. I like some of the matchup opportunities for Nathaniel Wood, just 30 years old, going forward, but we'll get to those a little later. Paul Craig is super interesting to me at middleweight because, one, the division feels wide open right now. Not only do we have... Probably Sean Strickland challenging for championship gold in Sydney. We have Drickus Duplessis defeated Robert Whitaker a couple weeks back. And there's just this feeling of a bit of a changing of the guard in the division. Paul Craig is now a part of that. Having stopped Andre Muniz, he will move into the top 15 when the rankings update early next week. And he's a guy that I really want to see what happens going forward because Paul Craig is at that point in his career at 35 where there's no reason to go slow with any of this and just have him holding position, right? This is someone that has faced top 10, top 15 competition for the majority of his UFC career, walks into a new division and faces a top 15 guy, earns himself a performance of the night bonus and should face another one again. He is one of the few remaining specialists in MMA and that's changing. He is getting better on the feet, which is a really impressive 
thing to see, an impressive feat to see from Paul Craig at 35, this far into his UFC and MMA career overall, to still be adding weapons and developing and getting better. Middleweight is still always going to be middleweight, but it's getting a little more interesting. And Paul Craig made it more interesting by looking as good as he did on Saturday in London. Not really going to talk about Ferez AM and Jai Herbert, as I said. Lerone Murphy beating Josh Koulibau really sort of salted the fight away and pulled away from Josh Koulibau in the second half of the fight, second half of the second round, turned it into a grappling match, dominated in that regard. And then in the third, hit him with a little liver kick that just kind of grazed and sat the, the Australian down, dominated from there. Murphy is one of those guys that, as I talked about during the week, I just, it's time now to just jump on the gas pedal and see where he stands. And again, I was talking to Harry throughout the event. And one of the things I said, he did the like, what do you do with Murphy next? And I gave him some names. I will bring those names up at the end of the show. And I said, look, he turned 32 today. Like it was his birthday today. He's now 32 years old. So on a five fight winning streak, 5-0-1 in the UFC, 13-0-1 overall, it's time to just go. There's no more facing these guys, right? Debuted against Zubara Tukagov, beat Ricardo Ramos, beat Douglas Silva D'Andrage, beat Makwan Armakani, beat Gabriel Santos in a fight that was supposed to be against Nathaniel Wood. Spoiler alert, I'm not pairing the two of them up. And now beats Joshua Koulibau. It's just time to go. There's no reason anymore with a guy that is 32 years old that seems to be able to be back to competing regularly. This was his second fight of the year after missing all of last year. Just go. Just go. There's enough bodies at featherweight that you can either risk some of these ascending fighters like Murphy or Wood or some of the others. Mavsari Vloyev is another one that comes to mind. And you can also put them in there against some of the veteran established people in the division because there's enough of them coming up behind them to replace them. And so I don't want to see another fight against an unranked opponent. I don't want to see another fight that's towards the start of a main card. Get this guy a big fight. Get it a co-main event or a feature fight on a fight night show where he gets a little bit of recognition, where he gets a little publicity. Going five straight wins in the UFC is really hard. Going undefeated in six fights, really difficult. Get him a bigger opportunity. The fight between Daniel Marcos and David Grant is one where I came away wondering why so many people are really high on Daniel Marcos. I understand that the Contender Series grad is undefeated 15-0 in his career, now 2-0 in the UFC, and a win over David Grant, don't get me wrong, is a very good win. Love David Grant, know this is a, a good victory. But the reason I'm hesitant, one, he didn't look great this fight. If you had scored that fight for David Grant, I would have no problem with it. Obviously, in watching and doing recaps and writing about Saturday's action, I don't sit down and really score fights the way I would when I do a rewatch or things like that. I may actually watch this one back just for myself, just to get a better sense. If I do, I will tweet out what my grade is or what my score is. But I look at Marcos and I think low output fighter here against a very good fighter, but somebody that is outside of the top 15. He's 30 years old. It kind of feels it's it's not quite the Lerone Murphy we got to go, but it's like if this guy is is so good that everybody is like, oh, I'm really high on, on Daniel Marcos. And I know a lot of people from my timeline are very high on Daniel Marcos. I would have wanted to see more than we saw on Saturday. And so I'll want to see more next time out to convince me. He looked very good against Simon Oliveira in his debut, which now in retrospect feels like him beating up a guy that he's considerably better than. He got in there on Saturday against somebody that's able to match him, that's able to frustrate him, that didn't play into his hand as much as Simon Oliveira did, and it was a close competitive fight. Now, coming out on the happy side of things against Davy Grant, again, is an admirable, excellent result. But it doesn't make me believe that you are destined to be a top 15 guy 
and a big prospect in this division. Not when you're 30 years old. Johnny Parsons and Danny Roberts winning fight of the night feels akin to me to Tom Cruise winning best actor because he was in Mission Impossible 96 Dead Reckoning Part 1, whatever it's called, and it does great box office. It's taking the sloppy, entertaining, get all the people in the building screaming and yelling because they just want to see guys stumbling around the cage fight and and rewarding it. And it it feels gross to me, quite frankly. It feels I'm not happy about it. I don't like it. It's never fun to me. And I know that I am an outlier a little bit in terms of what I look for and the things that I value in, in defining not only fight of the night, but fight of the year and things that I call great fights versus good fights versus entertaining fights. This to me was certainly entertaining. It was two guys that at some point midway through the first round were like, you know what? This being technical and trying to win this clean isn't working. Let's just throw bombs and try to spark each other out. And then they did that for another just about seven minutes and change until it ended. But it wasn't a good fight. It was an entertaining fight, sure, but it wasn't a good fight. The best fight on Saturday night was Nathaniel Wood and Andre Feely because it had some of those moments of people getting knocked down and getting hurt, but having to rally back and show resolve and composure and conditioning and skill. And this fight didn't have it. And I'm, I know, again, there are a lot of people that love these kinds of fights and the UFC can reward whichever matchups they want to reward. This to me isn't anywhere near my fight of the night list. I'm going to have to write the monthly report for July after next weekend's pay-per-view. And when I put together the list of like best fight of the month, I generally, as one should, look at what one fight of the night over the course of the month. This one did. It's not going to be, it's not even in the running. I can tell you right now with an entire fight card to go, this one isn't in the running for fight of the month even though it was fight of the night on Saturday. I touched on the Yoel Alvarez, Mark Jacasey ending a little bit in the intro. So I don't really need to go over it. I do want to see, and I am curious to see if Jacasey's team um, appeals, excuse me, lost the word for a second, appeals the decision because it's quite clear that there is a clash of heads. We've seen it a great deal lately. We've seen fights stopped as a result. We've seen, Results changed and altered over the last couple of fights, couple of events, couple of months, really, going back to the Bobby Green, Jared Gordon fight. We had a couple here in Vancouver. It's just one of those unfortunate things. Obviously, it's bodies in motion. Joel Alvarez is not trying to headbutt Mark Jacasey, unlike Andre Muniz, who landed a clear headbutt on Paul Craig, was warned, but should have lost a point right away. Incidentally, same referee, both fights, Dan Mobahedi. So not a great night for Dan Movahedi. But it's still a good win for Joel Alvarez, who remains to me a guy that should be moving forward, that is just outside the top 15 at lightweight, that I think can be a top 15 lightweight. There's going to be a couple guys that fall out. Demir Ishmagulov contract is up. He will come out of the rankings. If Alvarez slides in, that would be fine. I think there's some good matchups for him in the future. I will get to the one I like towards the end of the show. Mick Parkin looked good, and I said in my About Saturday's action recap piece that he is the best heavyweight to come off of Dana White's contender series. Now, I made sure to point out and remind people before they got all up in arms that Jailton Almeida competed on contender series at light heavyweight, started his UFC career at light heavyweight before moving to heavyweight. So if you want to call it a technicality, fine. And... It might be damning with faint praise because the class of heavyweights that have come off Dana White's contender series aren't necessarily great. But here's what I saw on Saturday for Mick Parkin. I saw a natural heavyweight, first and foremost. As a overweight, chubby, big-bellied dude, I feel comfortable in saying Mick Parkin looks like a natural heavyweight. Jamal Pogues looks like a guy that just got big and didn't want to cut 
to 205 anymore because that's where he started. And listen, I understand I haven't seen 205 in a long ass time and I don't want to get there. I don't want to do the work to get there. So I get it. But Parkin looks like a good, sturdy, solid, well-conditioned, good fundamentals, 27-year-old heavyweight who is undefeated, who trains with great guys in Phil DeFries and Tom Aspinall and that crew and a bunch of good people. And I'm really interested to see him do more work going forward. As I said in the lead to this, you want to give me a couple of 27-year-old heavyweights where I get to find out firsthand watching them compete, which one is better and make some reads on what the future may look like. I like Mick Parkin's future. It's going to take a while. There's still work to be done. He's only seven fights in, but it's a good future. It's a bright future. I'm going to keep watching this kid. You should too. Mahmoud Muradov and Brian Barbarina. The takeaway for me from this fight is really that Bam Bam is going to have these sorts of issues at middleweight. You know, I'm a big Bam Bam guy. He's somebody I have talked to a great deal, have a great deal of respect for, appreciate all the time he has given me over the years. But this was one of those fights where he's in against a better athlete. He's against a longer, rangier, stronger fighter who is able to just outwork him both technically and distance wise. It's always going to be hard for Brian at, at this weight class because he is comparatively undersized. He's not a little guy by any stretch, but Muradov has a great big reach. There are going to be guys in that mid pack and above of middleweight that are just better athletes that could, if they didn't want to cut weight, compete at 205, right? This is the rub of guys like Bam Bam going up and fighting in what probably should be his natural weight class. A bunch of other folks aren't. They're all cutting down a whole grip of weight. And it makes these things really difficult. He got dominated from start to finish. Not dominated. He got, he was handily beaten. There was no point in this fight where you thought Bam Bam was winning or going to win or having any great extended success. He's tough as nails. He's durable as shit. I love the guy, but this is going to be a hard transition. And I want to see what comes of this first trip up to middleweight. I'm going to reach out at some point once he gets back. I want to give him a couple of days at least, but I want to have that conversation. And he's always been someone that has been good with me about having those conversations. If he is interested, I will bring him back on a conversation with to have that conversation and find out his thoughts on his first fight at middleweight. Because to me, it wasn't good, but it was also what I expected. And I really would like to know his own assessment of this move and what happens going forward. The takeaway from the women's bantamweight fight is that there are very clear and distinct tiers in this division. Catlin Vieira was number four. Penny Kianzad was number seven. And through the course of those first two rounds, it was very clear that number four was significantly better than number seven, even though there's not a great deal of space between them in the rankings. Then of course, Catlin Vieira tires. Penny Kianzad has success in the third round. Excuse me, little brain freeze. Has success in the third round. And that, to me, illustrates that one, two, and three are significantly better than four, Ketlin Vieira. And I want to throw Irina Aldana in there. I believe she is at number six in the rankings. She already holds a win over Ketlin Vieira, knocked her out. Uh, just about four years ago, four years in December ago. And so that four pack of fighters, Juliana Pena, Myra Bueno Silva, Raquel Pennington, and Ketlin Vieira, sorry, and Irene Aldana feel like they are above Ketlin Vieira, who then feels above sort of everybody in that pack behind her, including Kianzad and Yana Santos, and maybe even Holly Holm, who she beat last year in a very tepid fight and who lost again last weekend. And it just feels like this division's in a really weird place right now after the retirement of Amanda Nunes with the vacant title and with having to make some decisions about how we go forward. The really difficult thing that I think the UFC matchmakers are going to have some trouble with is that a lot of these women have fought each other already, or at least Pennington, Aldana, 
and Vieira have rotated through a lot of the competition. And so you're limited in terms of the way you book these fights. I will get to who I want Ketlin Vieira to face, how I think you should pair them up going forward towards the end of the show, but it's going to be difficult. It's going to be messy. It's not going to feel good when it gets done. And I really want to see if either Vieira can elevate her level going forward or if that group in front of her can really distance themselves and all collectively raise their levels and be even better. Chris Duncan got a good win over Yanel Ashmuz, and I don't want to take away from that performance. Kudos to the problem for getting a second straight win. It was a good effort. He has looked much better in his two UFC fights than he did on the Contender Series. Actually would like to talk to him and, and ask if he went into those Contender Series fights with the mindset of, I need to go balls to the wall because this is the Contender Series and you can't be reserved and win decisions and be patient and be poised. You need to go out and go crazy, resulting in the loss to Slava Borshev the first time around, then getting hurt but finishing Charlie Campbell in his second fight to earn a contract. He has looked really good. But the thing for me in this fight, Yanel Ashmuz clearly hurts his wrist in the first round. I would wager a guess that he broke his wrist, blocking a high kick, because he goes back to the corner at the end of the round and he's playing with his wrist and he's looking at it and the whole time he's trying to tell his coaches and he's looking at it and all like that and he goes back out in the second and we all know that he's got something wrong with his wrist and things don't go well he doesn't throw the left hand at all goes back to the corner again and the corner says we need you to throw combinations and Ashmoos looks at him and is like I can't make a fist bro how do you want me to throw combinations with my left hand when I can't make a fist and then he goes out for the third round. It goes the way you would expect it to go for a guy that's fighting with one damn arm. And we do this thing. The comms do the thing of applauding the guy that goes out there, even though he's hurt and catches a beating. And I tweeted out that we got to stop doing this. We got to stop valorizing toughness. We got to stop treating stupidity almost. And putting yourself in harm's way and putting your athlete in harm's way when there's no need as a badge of honor. We all know these men and women are tough. If any person that watches this sport wants to question the toughness and desire and heart of these athletes, they chose to be cage fighters. They had the choice of doing whatever it is that they wanted to do. And they said, you know what? I want to earn my living by getting punched in the face. They're tough. They've got heart. They've got resiliency. They made it to the highest level in this sport that doesn't pay nearly enough at any level. None of those things should be in question. And so if somebody's hurt and somebody can't go out there and have full use of all of their weapons, their coaches need to stop the fight. Because Ash Moose isn't going to go into his corner and very few fighters will go into their corner and say, hey, I need to be done. I can't continue. Because they've been told forever, drilled in their head, you do not quit. It's why we hear, I'm going to go out on my shield. I'm not going to tap. You're going to have to kill me. All of that rhetoric. It has been hardwired into their head that you do not quit. You continue fighting. But as the corner, and as the people that are watching the fight, even the officials watching cage side, you got to protect that athlete. And if he tells you in the corner that I can't make a fist and he's coming off five minutes where he didn't throw that left hand once, protect your athlete. We don't need him to go out there and get a merit badge for being tough by trying to fight Chris Duncan with one hand. We know he's tough. He was 7-0 and coming into this. We know he's tough. Protect him. And we got to stop making toughness and durability and the ability to catch a beating this thing that we praise people for yes it's a admirable quality in a cage fight that you don't go out on the first shot like sure and you're able to take some shots and you know i i talk about durability all the time and i want to get better with my language about it because that was uncomfortable to me. This guy that had one one weapon, 
taken away from him. Just kept getting sent back out there. And I'm glad it didn't get worse than it was. I'm glad he didn't get hurt further. I'm glad he didn't get knocked out in violent fashion. But he didn't need to be in, in there for the third round. Nothing was going to change. He wasn't winning that fight. It wasn't happening. Protect your fighters. The women's strawweight fight between Bruno Brazil and Shauna Bannon. My takeaway from the fight is that Shauna Bannon has a long way to go before she is truly UFC ready. And there are going to be people that disagree with me. And it's not because Bruno Brazil looked great or anything like that because Bruno Brazil didn't look great. She's not even, in my opinion, particularly UFC ready. She's now got a victory, sure, fine, good, whatever. She's going to be hanging out in the lower half of the strawweight division going forward. But Sean Bannon, and they touched on it a little bit, Paul Felder and Michael Bisping touched on it during the broadcast. Right now, she is a point karate fighter, essentially. She throws a bunch of kicks that don't have any power on them, that touch the body and help her maintain range and help her maintain distance. And that's all well and good. But there needs to be a whole lot more. And we saw in this matchup, as much as she ramped it up in the third and earned the third round on two of the three scorecards, it's just not there yet. And it feels like she probably would have been better served continuing to compete in Invicta. Now, I understand all of the reasons why when the UFC calls, you say yes and you go. We don't have to debate that part of it. What's going to be interesting to me is how these next couple fights go. Because if the UFC wants to give her a long leash and allow her to develop and allow her time, afford her opportunities to get better, great. But there's always the possibility that this ends up being similar to Reese McKee, another Irish fighter who came to the UFC probably a little too early and got thrown in a little too deep, right? We can take away the Hamzat Chemaev fight because that was nonsense and crazy and 10 days notice and against the guy that's way too good for him. But his second fight was against Alex Morono. It was a competitive fight and then Reese was let go, goes back to Cage Warriors, has some success, was re-signed, is going to fight in Paris against Angelosa and I want to see how that goes because I have opinions and thoughts on that, but we'll save those for September. But he struggled as well, right? And it felt like it was just a little bit too soon. Just not quite ready to be there. And I get it. You go because this is where you want to be. This is where the pay is the best. As much as that is hard for people to accept and understand because the pay isn't great. But it just feels like Sean Bannon, for all the hype and attention and promotion, myself included, I was really interested, really curious to see how this goes. She's not there yet. And I want to see what the development is like over the next 18 months, over the next three fights to see where she can get to and see if she can take this up a level. Because if she can't, it's going to be a short, unproductive stay in the UFC. I owe Jafel Filo a apology leading up to this fight. I talked about how in the fight with Muhammad Makayev earlier this year in London, it felt like he kind of quit a little bit when there was a face crank and neck crank put on him late in the round after he failed to complete the knee bar that ripped up some of Makayev's knee and, and has had him not on this card, quite frankly. But he went out and he dealt with some really hellacious body shots from Danny Perez in the first round. Got dropped a couple of times, but recovered, recuperated, and went on the offensive and got himself an arm triangle choke three minutes and 26 seconds in. Philo is one of those guys to me that is so needed in the flyweight division. And this is where a developing division, you start to add these guys now. Flyweight is still a little bit behind all of these other established weight classes because we had the moment where the UFC thought about doing away with it. And they purged some of that veteran class, some of that journeyman class, the good hand group that would otherwise still be in the UFC competing or maybe wouldn't, but you know what I mean, right? The, the guys that are outside of the top 15, but that give you depth to the, to the division. 
I think Philo is going to be one of those guys. He's 30 years old already. There's limited room to grow. There's limited upside for him, I think, in the division going forward. But that doesn't mean he can't have a productive UFC career. That doesn't mean he can't be a useful, vital member of this weight class. Not that he's going to be the Andre Feely of flyweight, but he can be someone in that regard, right? He can be one of those people, a Davy Grant, an Andre Feely, even a Molly McCann, quite frankly, that is just out there in good, competitive, entertaining fights where you push the other person and you have some good wins and we know who you are. This was a good performance. He dealt with some adversity. He came back and got a win. I apologize for questioning his heart in the lead up to this. As I just said with Yanel Ashmoos, all these guys got heart. I got to stop. I got to stop. I can only look after me. I can only worry about my words, my lexicon, my language. I will take that out of my vocabulary going forward. Congratulations, Jafel Filo. As we round the final turn and head for the home stretch here on the next day takeaways, I want to go through, as I said, a little bit of matchmaking, something I want to start doing at the end of every one of these shows. One, to put some ideas out there and start talking about what does come next. This is takeaways and forward thinking. But two, just to see what my matchmaking skills, abilities, thoughts, ideas are like in terms of whether some of these matchups come together and what you folks out there listening think about these pairings. So please, if you like any of these, let me know. If you don't like any of them, let me know. But let's have some fun here. So as I mentioned earlier, Tom Aspinall against the winner of the serial gone Sergey Spivak fight makes all the sense in the world to me. Yulia Stolyarenko. It's her first win at flyweight. It's her first fight at flyweight. She's still just two and six in the UFC. So there's no need to go crazy. There's no need to rush her in against anyone of great consequence in the division. The perfect dance partner for her, quite frankly, is Luana Carolina. And I know that Carolina got knocked out last year by Molly McCann. She rebounded with a victory a couple of weeks ago against Ivana Petrovic in her debut. She's a long, rangy fighter that has some power, that is a good striker, that can go out there and push Stolyarenko in the spot where she still needs to show improvement and show she can hang. She'll still have Stolyarenko, that is. will still have the edge on the ground. She will in most fights. She is a legitimate black belt with legitimate grappling credentials. Put her in there against Luana Carolina. That's the fight I want to see. Nathaniel Wood. I think it's time to get him a top 15 pairing. And I think it's Sadiq Youssef. Sadiq hasn't fought in a little bit now. It's been far too long as far as I'm concerned. I think there was an episode here not that long ago where I said, Sadiq Youssef, please return. I really want to see you fight. I like you fighting. I like what you bring to the table. He's 30 years old. Wood is 30 years old. Sadiq Youssef is 6-1 and one in the UFC. His one loss is to Arnold Allen. He's on a two-fight winning streak. He's already beaten the guy at the very end of the top 15 in Alex Caceres, who was another name that was in my mind a little bit for Nathaniel Wood. Let's do that. Let's do that. It's been since last October, since Sadiq Youssef fought. Let's get him out there. That's the fight I want to see. I think it would be a fun, competitive fight between two guys that are very good everywhere. It will be a slightly, I would say, more technical, more speedy version of this fight from Saturday against Andre Feely. Love that matchup. The prospect gets a top 15 opponent, and we find out if he's able to be a top 15 fighter in the, in the featherweight division. Makes a whole lot of sense to me. As I mentioned with Paul Craig, no need to go slow. No need to slow roll this, slow play this, whatever you want to say. 35 years old, just defeated number 14 in the division, will climb into the top 15 himself. Let's give him Jack Hermanson. Whenever the Joker is ready to return, I know he is injured presently. He was supposed to fight earlier this, this summer and had to withdraw, fight against Brendan Allen. Hopefully it's not anything too serious. I haven't seen any actual reports yet of what it is. I haven't really looked all that hard either because I'm not a injury chaser in that regards. But whenever the Joker is back and ready and healthy to go, I think he makes a lot of sense as a dance partner for Paul Craig. He's stationed in the top 10 
at the bottom of the top 10 at number 10. He's good everywhere, competitive on the feet, great gas tank, very good grappler himself. It's another sort of measuring stick. It's another bar. It's another rung up the ladder for Paul Craig. So let's do that. That feels like a fight that could be the co-main event of a fight night show. In a pinch, it could maybe headline if there was something else in Europe towards the end of the year or early next year, whenever these guys want to compete again. I know Paul Craig threw out the name Bo Nickel at his media availability. And while I would absolutely watch that fight, one, I think Bo Nickel has said he wants to take the rest of the year off and deal with some injuries and just continue getting better. And so after a win like this, I don't want to see Paul Craig take the next eight months off. I want to see him continue to compete. And two, I don't think the UFC is necessarily in a hurry to get Bo Nickel in there with a top 15 guy just quite yet. I think he'll have one more, maybe even two more before he gets in there. I think he'll have sort of that mid-pack middleweight. He may, he might end up with a guy like Muradov. That's not who I've picked for Mahmoud Muradov in the future, but he may end up in there with someone like that, someone in that range before he faces a top 15 opponent. So give me Paul Craig versus Jack Hermanson. Little bit of the grapples, little bit of the striking. Could go anywhere, should be a finish, will be entertaining. Makes a great deal of sense to me. For Ferez AM, who's now 4-2 and two in the UFC, what about Jordan Levitt, who is also 4-2 and two in the UFC? He was forced out of a fight in mid-June against Elvis Brenner with an injury. Whenever he recovers, whenever he's ready to return, that feels like a good matchup to me. Two guys that are still developing, that are relatively young. Zayem is 26, Jordan Levitt is 28. They're showing a little bit, but not anything that feels, in my opinion, like top end, really make a push, progress, or talent inside the octagon as of yet. So get them in there against one another and see which one keeps taking steps forward. At some point, you have to make decisions on some of these athletes. You have to have them facing other guys that may be going forward rather than just keeping them all at the bottom of the bottom half of the division. Let's see if one of them can take a step forward. That feels like a good matchup to me. There are numerous options in that lower third, lower half of 155 for Ferez AM. That should be noted. With Laurel Murphy, I touched on it a little bit earlier. Very similar to Nathaniel Wood. Let's just go. Let's just figure this out. And so I've actually got two names. And they are Edson Barbosa and Alex Caceres. And I think they are similar, but slight Edson Bar the Edson Barbosa fight is slightly more elevated, right? Edson Barbosa had a very good career at lightweight. He has fought one of the toughest strengths of schedule in the UFC. He is the now we're really gonna find out if you are a top 10 fighter or not option at featherweight for Lerone Murphy. Alex Caceres has been very good of late. He's coming off a win over Daniel Pineda. Overall, has been really good in the last bunch of fights, and it's been great to see. But he feels to me like he's a step behind Edson Barbosa, but still, while still being a good step forward for Lerone Murphy. Alex Caceres is the kind of guy that if you're Lerone Murphy and you're going to be something and you want to be, as you said in your post-fight, as you rightfully have said in, in various interviews, you want to test yourself against the best in the world and eventually be world champion, go test yourself against Alex Caceres. If you beat him, we get another step forward. Regardless of which of these two it is or anyone else, it needs to be somebody ranked and it needs to be a meaningful fight. It needs to be something that is going to tell us whether this guy is a contender or not. He's 32. And I know that 32 isn't all that old, especially sitting here as a 44-year-old, but like there's not two or three more years to figure out and let this guy kind of marinate and slowly matriculate his way up the featherweight rankings. At a certain point, we need to just go with some of these fighters because there's a wealth of talent always coming up behind all of these guys. I don't want to continue to see, and I touch on this all the time, I don't want to see athletes get to six, seven, eight wins and still not be facing fighters in the top 10. 
that feels pointless to me because to have that success is important and needs to be rewarded and needs to be recognized. And you shouldn't just be having to go through every small little step forward. He's now got five straight wins. If a guy that has five straight wins and a 5-0-1 record in the UFC isn't facing top 15 competition, one, it means the division is great and there's been stuff that has been in the way of his progressing further ahead. But you best have a whole bunch of other options besides this guy that are coming forward and testing some of these top 15 guys. And it can't just be that 14 is fighting 15 and 12 is fighting 13 and we're just going to constantly match them up one beside each other because that leads to the bottlenecking and the redundancies that we've seen in so many divisions that we really need to get away from. So get Lerone Murphy in there with Edson Barbosa or Alex Caceres or Dan Ige or Bryce Mitchell or Sadiq Youssef or Nathaniel Wood if you want to do it. I don't want to see it. I know they were matched earlier. I don't want to see it. I want to see each of them against a veteran guy. Keep these two attempting to move forward together on similar tracks. Similar to what I was saying earlier in the night with Aspinall and Pavlovich. There's no need to burn one against the other as they're both moving forward. Get them in there with established talents. Let's see where we stand. Get through these prelims a little bit quicker as we roll towards the one hour mark here on the next day. Takeaways. Daniel Marcos, if you're a guy, go out there and beat Chris Gutierrez. Gutierrez is somebody that has had overall success in the UFC, seven and two in the UFC, but he got his step up in competition last time out and wasn't able to pass that test. And that's fine. Pedro Munoz is a tough out. He's a tough old veteran dude. He is one of those guys, kind of like a, an elevated version of Andre Feely, right? Was a top 10, top 15 guy for a number of years. And Chris Gutierrez couldn't pass that test. There's no shame in that. Now you get to be the guy in that second 15 that guys like Daniel Marcos test themselves against. Johnny Parsons gets the win. Put him in there with Trey Waters, who got a victory on short notice against Josh Quinlan in his debut. He had fought on the Contender Series. I think he may have fought, now that I think of it. I think he may have fought. No, Johnny Johnny Parsons fought Solomon Renfro. I was going to say, I think he may have fought Johnny Parsons on the Contender Series. But Johnny Parsons fought Solomon Renfro. Get him in there with Trey Waters, a pair of Contender Series grads that are 1-0 in the UFC, and let's just move forward from there. Joel Alvarez, if you're not going to give him a top 15 guy, and it's kind of tough because some of those names at the bottom of the top 15, like Hanato Moicano, isn't taking that fight. It's not a big enough fight. Jalen Turner is coming off a fight with Dan Hooker. That's not happening. Grant Dawson, after beating Demirish Mugulov, isn't fighting backwards. Matt Frivola has his eyes set on Patty Pimblett. I doubt he is agreeing to fight Joel Alvarez anytime soon. So what about Carlos Diego Fajaya? He's coming off the knockout win over Michael Johnson. He was a top 15 guy for a number of years. He will push Joel Alvarez in areas on the ground. He's got clearly has power from that knockout win over Johnson. Feels like a good matchup. You win that one, then you're into that top 15 conversation as you've put together consecutive victories and your losses continue to age well and look good that you've only lost earlier in your career to top 15 talents. That to me feels like the way into the top 15 for Yoel Alvarez, Joel Alvarez. Mick Parkin, get him in there with Carl Williams. 33 years old, Carl Williams. It's an opportunity to get two young fighters in terms of the division, in terms of their experience in the UFC, in there together. I know I have said multiple times here that I don't want to put people together when they're on ascending upward tracks. This early in Mick Parkin's career and this early in Carl Williams' UFC tenure, it's okay. Because Carl Williams struggled against Chase Sherman. And if you're going to hang around after struggling against Chase Sherman, I want you to beat somebody that I think has some upside. And if you're Mick Parkin, you get a guy that's unbeaten in the UFC, 1-0 in the UFC, has a win, looked okay, but feels like a guy you can go out and beat. So let's do that. As for Mahmoud Muradov, what about Marc-Andre Barrio? 
Power Bar is coming off a good win out here over Eric Anders. He is another one of those middle of the middleweight division kind of fighters. Ultimately, he has been a 500 fighter in the UFC. He is 5-5-1 five, five, and one in the UFC. Seems to be putting it together a little bit more. Seems to be getting a little bit more refined. He, like Muradov, already into his 30s, has an advance beyond this middle of the pack. As much as I know, he would probably like something a little further up the line. This feels like the right kind of fight for each guy for me before we move them forward. If you want to do someone a little bit sexier, a little bit more interesting, what about John Young Park? Iron Turtle just got a stoppage win last weekend against Albert Durayev in Las Vegas. He's 7-2 and two in the UFC. I think he should get someone a little further up the food chain. So I like the Marc-Andre Barrio idea. But those are those are sort of the, the range and that's sort of the options for Mahmoud Muradov after beating Brian Barberina. The UFC is going to Sao Paulo, Brazil on November 4th of this year for a fight card that is going to be headlined or scheduled to be headlined by a heavyweight fight between Curtis Blades and Jailton Almeida. And I think Myra Bueno Silva and Catlin Vieira should be the co-main event of that fight. That means that I think you do Raquel Pennington and Juliana Pena for the vacant bantamweight title. As much as I love Myra Buena Silva coming out and being like, Juliana's talking like she's got the belt. She's not the champion. She's coming off a loss. I don't know what makes her think she can call the shots. I think she has the name appeal and the built-in recognition with the audience to be involved in that fight. She was supposed to fight for the title out here in Vancouver. There's no way that the, the vacant title fight isn't going to include her. As much as I think you could get Myra Buena Silva into that fight, and I think she deserves it, as I said on Monday, I think that win over Holly Holm puts her in that conversation and could truthfully put her in the title fight. The reason I haven't is because Catlin Vieira faced Raquel Pennington earlier this year, so you can't do that fight again already, and she's already faced and lost to Irene Aldana. Doesn't feel like you can do that fight again at this point. I know it's been four years by the time December rolls around, so maybe you could do that fight four years later in Sao Paulo, number one contender, whatever you want to decide there, but it just... The options for Vieira don't feel as good as they do for some of these other athletes. And so I think you put her in that important spot against Bueno Silva in Sao Paulo. Brazil versus Brazil in Brazil with a title shot on the line to bolster out that card and make it a little bit stronger of a fight night event. Chris Duncan is a 30-year-old lightweight. He is 2-0 in the UFC. Alexander Hernandez is a 30-year-old lightweight who is coming off a win over Jim Miller, and he has not elevated himself into that top 15 that a lot of people expected him to get to at some point in his career after debuting with a win over Benil Dariush. Stick the two of them in there, see which one wrestle box is better than the other, and the winner keeps going forward. Sometimes it can be that easy. Bruno Brazil is now 1-0. Stick her in there with Diana Belbiza. Belbiza got a unanimous decision win over another Brazilian, Maria Oliveira, out here in Vancouver at UFC 289. She has won two of three since moving to strawweight. It just feels like, let's just see what Bruna Brazil's got. Diana Belbiza is good enough to push her. And if Brazil isn't capable of beating Diana Belbiza at this point in her development, in her career, it tells us everything we need to know about her as as a prospect right now in the UFC. Feels like an easy fight to make. Relatively similar timeline. Six weeks separating the two of them in terms of fights. You could even do that one on that Sao Paulo card as well. Brings us to Jafel Filo. Coming off a win over Danny Perez here in London. Get him in there with Clayton Carpenter. As I said a little earlier. Feels like Perez is going to be... Sorry. Feels like Filo is going to be one of those guys... That is just kind of the veteran hand in a division where he's tough, he's durable, he's dangerous. I just used durable and tough. God damn, that's going to be hard. He's a competitive fighter. 
that is well-rounded and capable, we saw in the Muhammad Makayev fight, of pushing very good talents, of forcing good talents to find certain reserves to get to where they need to go. Clayton Carpenter won his debut. He was unable to compete earlier this year in a fight that involved a couple different shifts in opponents. It got to Steve Urseg at one point. Astro Boy wasn't able to compete. He ended up coming out here to Vancouver and beating a top 15 fighter. So he's out of the mix for Carpenter at this point. Philo feels like a good, seasoned, experienced fighter. Carpenter's 7-0, full of confidence, trains at the MMA lab. Get him in there with an experienced veteran just to see what this kid has. As much as it sucks for Jafel Philo to constantly be the guy that is being used as the litmus test, if you go out there and beat a couple of these kids and you go out there and beat a couple of these emerging fighters and guys that are young and undefeated and show some promise, then you get your opportunities. That's how he's going to have to get his opportunities. He's not going to get rolled out there against an established name in the division. He's going to have to go through two or three more of these young, talented fighters before getting in there with a ranked opponent again. And with that, we are through for episode 37 of the Next Seat Takeaways. Appreciate you listening as always. You can check me out, all of the work here on the Substack page, spencerkite.substack.com. Subscribe for free for $5 a month for 50 bucks for the year. Any way you sign up, you get all the content into your inbox, except for the paywall stuff on Monday. That goes to only the folks that are, are paying for their subscriptions. I got to give them something. I appreciate their patronage. So they got to get a reward of some kind. That is the Keyboard Kimura podcast on Mondays and some other stuff as I get doing a little bit more as I get into a nice rhythm here now that I'm back into the flow of things this week. Follow the guys at OneBone, OneBoneBrand.com for all your apparel needs. There is more stuff coming down the pipe that I am so excited about. Within the next year, I will bet you that I can wear an entire head-to-toe, top-to-bottom, every level every layer, full one bone outfit. And I'm looking forward to it. It's great stuff. If you do check them out, if you do want to try the gear, try the gear, ESK20 at checkout to get 20% off your order and let them know that you heard about them from me. Always supporting the brand, always supporting the community. Go check them out. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Spencer Kite. As always, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for consuming my work over this past week, over all these months, these years, however long you've been around. Greatly appreciate it. I hope you all have a fantastic week. Love you. Appreciate you. Be good to yourselves. Be good to one another. And we'll talk to you on Monday.